and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you can help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And we have something called a Patreon homepage. So if you go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers, over there you can find out how to subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. Thanks to everybody who's already done so. And if you're inspired to do so, we encourage you to once again go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Now to today's guest, and I'm really excited to introduce Brendan Tui to you, and hopefully you will go over to peaceplayers.org and check out the great work that Brendan continues to do in building peace throughout the world through basketball. So Brendan is somebody who grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. He played basketball. He played in the park, and he grew up in a diverse environment, and that diverse environment has really shaped how he sees the world and how he sees humans, and that shaping has helped build a culture at Peace Players where they are inspiring people to see each other as people through the game of basketball. So Brendan played Division I basketball at Colgate, so he'll talk about that experience. And then he'll talk about his nonprofit, peaceplayers.org. And when I say his nonprofit, you'll learn real quick that Brendan does not look at his business that way. He really looks at himself as a servant leader, and it's his job to empower those that he serves. And he serves over 100 employees and over 6,500 kids throughout the world. So they have sites in Israel, Cyprus, South Africa, Ireland. Now they're in the U.S. in Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, Brooklyn, Baltimore. They are expanding rapidly into the United States, and their mission is to really have people leverage the game of basketball so that they can go into areas of conflict and have these people who are conflicted start seeing each other as humans and develop empathy and start to walk in each other's shoes. And it's just a powerful organization. We've had a lot of podcast guests on the show who are supporters of Peace Players, and Brendan is just a terrific leader. He is somebody who serves people. He empowers the people 
people in his organization. And he definitely wants peace players to be far more than him. And he aspires to create systems and culture around what they're trying to do and ultimately to try to create change and make the world a better place. So Brendan is an incredible human being. He's an incredible leader and he's extremely thoughtful with how he sets up his organization and what he wants the organization to be going forward. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Brendan Tui. Brendan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited for us to dive deep. We've done a lot of deep dives over the last couple of years and I've gotten to get to know you but not with a microphone and not in this much of a personal setting. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about you. And of course, you know, before we get started, I owe you a thank you because Peace Players has come into my life and uh, I just feel so honored to be a part of the organization that you've helped to build and to see it in multiple phases and multiple iterations and all over the world in different capacities has been fun. And then a lot of our podcast guests have been people that I've met through your amazing organization. So if you have enjoyed the podcast so far, you actually owe Brendan a thank you. So a lot of our guests have been people that I've met through the Peace Players Network and family. So I owe you a big thank you. And where I'd love to start with you is I've spent some time with your mom and dad. We've actually been in Israel together. Uh, we've closed down bars together. <laughs> and uh, I'm excited to learn a little bit about your upbringing and what it was like and how somehow you and your brother became inspired to do what you've been able to do. So give me an idea of what childhood was like in the Tui household growing up in the D.C. area. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, the feeling is mutual. We love having you, Brian, involved with us, your family. It's been uh, It's been awesome. So I grew up in Shepherd Park, which is just off 16th Street, uh, kind of north D.C., uptown, uh, kind of near Silver Spring, but still in D.C. And my parents are from Rochester, New York. My dad went to law school, graduated from Fordham, and then got an, uh, a job uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And as they were looking at neighborhoods, this is uh, before, uh, I've got two younger brothers, before they had a family, uh, they wanted to be uh, in a diverse neighborhood where kids uh, didn't all look the same, and um, they really thought it would be great to, to raise us in that atmosphere where uh, kids could, can learn from differences and be exposed to things that maybe uh, they hadn't been exposed to living in Rochester, New York. And so I've got, I'm the oldest, I've got younger brothers Sean and Devin, and we grew up, we actually had three different houses all within Shepherd Park. And we ended up spending most of our boyhood on Locust Road. And we were fortunate enough that we lived on a street with almost all boys, all near our age. And so what kind of defines childhood for, for me and, and my brothers and you know, our memories is just always playing outside, playing basketball, playing football, playing bike tag and developing friends uh, from, you know, from kids from all sorts of different backgrounds. And we didn't even, I mean, it sounds simple, but we didn't even maybe recognize the, the, the color issue that we actually, there were more black kids in our neighborhood than white kids. We didn't even recognize that. And so I don't know at what point in, in, in growing up, but it was just a really fun childhood. Um, my parents, my dad was a lawyer, my mom's a social worker. And uh, they always stressed kind of being in the middle of things and, and serving others and 
Um, and so that also was a, was a big part of kind of the lessons that we learned from them, not so much them talking about it, just kind of how they, they lived every day. And I've got two younger brothers, Sean, who's a year and a half, and then Devin, uh, who is five years younger than me. And Sean and I especially, because we were so close in age, we were always together, always playing, had the same set of friends. We grew up and went to Shepherd Elementary, which is a couple blocks away from where we lived. And from about five to about probably 12 or 13, almost every day was spent on the playground at Shepherd, mostly playing basketball. And that's where we both fell in love with it. Was dad a basketball guy, mom into basketball? My mom and dad both love all sports. They love basketball. My mom especially was a really good athlete. She played basketball in high school, but at that time, like, like you weren't allowed to – you had to stay on one end of the court. Like, you were limited in the dribbles. It was kind of a different game. And um, But she was kind of good at everything, and her mother – growing up was an outstanding athlete mm. so i think uh we probably sorry dad but we probably got more of uh you know athletic genes from from my mother and we definitely got a uh a competitive streak from my mom and i remember being i don't know 12 or 13 years old coming home one day being really upset um, because i hadn't played that much in a game a boys and girls club game and she looked at me dead in the eye and said, maybe you're just not very good. Ooh. And, uh, and she's a, you know, she's a therapist. <laughs> That's a kind of interesting thing to say to your son, but I think she, she knew her sons and maybe it's a little bit di- differently than people are raised now, but it was, that's kind of who she was. Like she's a you know, s- straight talker and she raised her, her, her sons to, uh, um, you know, to be accountable and, um, to be direct and, to know that if we wanted to really get something, we had to work for it. It wouldn't be given to us. What was your reaction to that when she said that in that moment? Yes, I am. I am good. You're wrong. So it worked. And why do you think she said that? Because I think maybe that's how she knew how I would take it. Um, I knew that that her her remarks then and would would drive me and motivate me to if I wanted to play more, I needed to go out and practice. Hard work, a, a part of the family dynamic? Yeah, my, my dad uh, was a lawyer, uh, spent most of his life in private practice. Uh, wasn't home a whole lot. Like, you'd get home late from, from work, but he was always at our games, and you knew he always was, was invested. And my mom worked full-time as a, as a therapist. So we also had a lot of time on our own. Um, you know, we had a babysitter that would come and, and stay and live with us and most of them wouldn't last more than six or seven months, so we had a constant rotating, you know, rotating babysitter. And uh, so we were kind of left on our own. And I mean, probably a lot of kids is kind of the generation when we were growing up. It wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of overparenting. Kids had some more freedom. And for us, that meant being out in our neighborhood and playing hoops and, um, you know, being with, with friends and seeing different. You know, even even though it was a you know pretty upper middle class neighborhood, it was you know lots of kids from lots of different you know environments. Um, so it was a great way to learn. Academics were academics something that you were uh, that was important to the family. You were out playing. Were you guys also doing homework, or how much were academics stressed? 
they they were stressed. I, mean, I think the expectations were we all had, uh, you know, the tools and uh, the support, and we would get very good grades. Um, and it was up to us to make sure that happened. And if it didn't happen, there'd be an answer. So I, I mean, I think we were blessed. We went to a really good elementary school that prepared us well. Uh, I in third grade, I, I Sean and my, my brother Sean and I switched over to Annunciation, which is a Catholic kind of grammar school over near. Uh, you know St. Albans, uh, kind of, kind of near Georgetown, and uh, you know I, w- I was blessed with. I, I don't I don't think we really any of us really st- struggled so much kind of in grade school. We got, you know, we did have a lot of freedom, a lot of time, and we got our work done. It just wasn't uh, uh, kind of things probably came maybe easier to us then than they came in high school because we went, all went to a pretty tough high school. But uh, I, mean, I think just our parents weren't sitting down and checking our homework and you know going over stuff with us. There was just this expectation that we'd all do really well. Catholicism, religion, did that play a role in your upbringing? It did, especially once we uh, went over to Annunciation. We went to Catholic school. Uh, so we went to church you know, every Sunday. My, my father, his aunt was a nun and his uncle was a priest and his mom went to church every day and my dad was actually in the seminary uh in high school so he at one point was studying to become a priest so that piece was always a big uh big part of our life both going to church and being aware of it but also just kind of the spiritual and particularly like their their religion uh, and Catholicism was based on helping others, less so like on ritual and more so on, you know, following what they believe Jesus taught. So there's a thread of helping people, uh, servicing people from a young age that's embedded into you guys. There is. And it was my mom's everyday job. So she, uh, you know, would spend the day, you know, meeting with her clients and helping them work out their own, you know, challenges. Uh, my dad, uh, as a lawyer, did a lot of just pro bono and, and really interesting work. But he was always, always through high school, through college, even now. You know, he's, I can't tell you how many calls my brothers and I get from, from friends and acquaintances. Can I talk to your dad? I need help. And he's, you know, he served on boards. He helped establish the Washington Jesuit Academy. He helped bring the Nationals to, to D.C. So He's done, you know, lots of interesting things, but, you know, both my mom and my dad, like, helping people was, was who, they, who they were. And, again, it wasn't them talking about it. It was them, them doing it. So I don't know how much they sat down with us and said, you need to do A, B, and C. It was more uh, witnessing uh, them in action. And growing up in the city, what was it like to be in the city? It was a really interesting time. Uh, so I was born in 1974. Uh, in the early 80s, we were we were young kids, and Shepherd Playground was one of the playgrounds in D.C. that was really good. So there was, you know, pickup games at a pretty high level every day for hours. And so we were younger, we'd just sit there hoping to get in, you know, and maybe, you know, an extra person to play or got a little bit later, and, you know, we, they, they, they let us, let us join. And we'd have our own games on the side. And gradually we started, as we started getting older, started getting better. We started, you know, kind of getting in the mix. And then mid-80s, it just stopped. Um, 
they, we kind of thought right when we thought it was kind of be our turn, mid to late '80s, to kind of run the run the playground and and you know be the the, the guys that that were good. Uh, but because of the the, the drug and crack game, I get that victim. I mean, TC, it just kind of you know people stopped you know going to the the playground at least to the degree that they were going before. So I didn't know, like I didn't, I wasn't aware of that necessarily at the time. But looking back on it, you can definitely see like all of a sudden. Um, you know, it just didn't exist where we would go from Shepherd to Fort Stevens and Petworth and other playgrounds and play, and there'd always be people there. But as we got to be seventh, eighth, ninth graders, it just stopped. And was there any thought or talk of you guys moving out of DC and going a little more to the suburbs? No, my, my parents, even today, I mean, they live in, you know, they live in Shepherd Park and I don't think they're ever going to leave. Now we, um, they're, they're committed to, to living there. It's a, it's a wonderful place. Um, so there was no no real discussion, no. And Gonzaga comes into the picture. For those yep. that aren't in the D.C. area, uh, give us a little insight into what it's like to go to Gonzaga, uh, explain the history and the tradition of sure. Gonzaga, because a lot of people are probably pretty ignorant to it. Yep. So Gonzaga is a, an all-boys Catholic Jesuit high school. It's located uh, just a few blocks from the capital. Uh, it's 9th through 12th. It's got about 1,000. It had about 1,000 boys, maybe a little bit less when I went there. It's got great academics, great sports, and, you know, they pride themselves, the school prides themselves on being in the middle of things and being and, and training and educating boys to be men for others. My dad actually went to a Jesuit high school in Rochester, and his mother, walking to school every day, uh, would be with Bernie Dooley, who was the president of Gonzaga uh, when I was a kid. So there was no doubt where myself or my brothers uh, were going. And it was a great place, an unbelievable experience, um, you know, both in terms of the, the education, uh, the friends that we made, um, being in the city at that time. And it was a pretty, like, North Capitol and, and K near Union Station, it was a pretty, pretty rough place back then. Um, you know, it's not, there's been so much development in D.C. and, and going east today, that's a, it's, it's, it's different. Um, but... Uh, you know, we were all just really lucky to have that experience. Um, we all played basketball, although I will say it wasn't like we got there and all of a sudden everything worked out. Like I remember playing freshman and not even playing that much. I didn't have to work really hard to, you know, play on JV and then make varsity and then eventually, you know, having uh, you know, having a pretty good career and then being able to play in play in college but I would say of, of any definitely of any scholastic experience um, but probably any four years in my life that was the most important in terms of my own development in terms of the network and friends that we made um, but just also the con, you know the conviction of you know our job is to, to help others um, and being in a, in, a, in a fairly like diverse community having grown up in suburban mm-hmm. DC and you know you have the white flight that occurs in a lot of cities and um, I'm curious was there ever any fear for you going to Gonzaga or leaving the school property and being in an environment that you know there's probably not a whole lot of people that look like you walking the streets for people that also don't know I mean DC the nickname of DC for years was Chocolate City there is a uh, 
a booming black community in Washington, D.C. It's one of the things that makes D.C. a really special, special city. And I'm just curious for you, being a, a city kid, um, were most of your friends at Gonzaga f- living near you or were they coming in from Virginia and Maryland? And I, I would love for you to just paint that picture of what it was like uh, and how you navigated uh, those environments. Yeah, I mean, I had friends from everywhere. And, you know, we had a, probably 200 kids in our class, but you get to know everybody really quickly. Um, and they would say, you know, I didn't, I don't know that we, I mean, also you're like, you're young and you don't really, maybe if you should feel fear sometimes and you just are ignorant to it. But no, I, I, we never had any issues like that. I mean, they would tell you, don't walk alone from the, the school to the subway or, um, you know, just kind of keep your, keep your head up. Um, but now we were, you know, we were, we were at a point we had, you know, and I say we, I'm talking about my brothers as well. We had kind of friends from, from all the places. We were maybe a little bit unique in that not all that many white kids had the experience that, that we had in terms of, you know, growing up in a neighborhood where most of the kids didn't look like us. Um, so I think maybe it makes it a little bit easier off, you know, in the beginning to, you know, to have, you know, lots of different friends and have friends that are, you know, they're African-American kids right off the bat. But, um, you know, I think everyone was really friends with everybody. So it was a, that, 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 that didn't seem to be too much of an issue, especially after the first few months. You use this phrase a couple of times, being in the middle of things, mm. and that Gonzaga is in the middle of things, and our family, we were taught to be in the middle of things. Mm. What do you mean by that? That means, I think, two things for me. It means... Being where stuff is going on, you know, you're in the center of the city, you're in a, you know, a neighborhood with, um, that's not boring, uh, but you're also in a place where you have people from all walks of life, um, where there are opportunities to serve, where there are, you're not hidden from, you know, people that aren't as fortunate as you are. It's a real easy, you know, I've got kids now and it's a, it's a struggle to keep them out of a bubble and, you know. And, and, uh, and I think sometimes we mistakenly think, hey, we're creating this bubble to keep our, our kids safe, uh, when a lot of times it puts up walls that prevents them from having experiences and opportunities that open their minds. Um, so that's what I mean by in the minimum of things, kind of where, where, where stuff is happening, but also where you have an opportunity to interact and relate with people that are all you know different from one another. It's interesting, as I'm hearing you talk, there was a watershed moment for me in in high school. I was a junior in high school and my family was involved with something called Hoop Dreams. And Hoop Dreams was a documentary, but then there was a nonprofit started in DC where they would raise money to get inner city kids scholarships to go to college. And I remember we were hosting something at, at my house, my parents' house. And my parents said to me, you know, you're a junior in high school. These kids are going to be juniors in high school. They're coming from Southeast DC. They've probably never been to an environment like our neighborhood. Um, make them feel at home and make them feel welcome. And I said, well, but I, I don't know how to do that. Like I, you know, I've interacted with all kinds of different people. Actually, our high school had tons of diversity, um, just Asian, Hispanic, black. It, there was diversity, but I, I didn't know the idea how how I could welcome them in and make them feel comfortable when I didn't feel that comfortable talking to strangers. And I remember by the end of that night, I was blown away by these kids because they were just like me. They were the same. And we talked sports. We talked about 
whatever you talk about when you're a junior in high school. And uh, I remember thinking, like, man, we do kind of live in a bubble because while we have um, low-income housing and we have kids at our high school, you know, interacting with us, they're still at our high school. They're still in an environment that is caring, loving, uh, motivated for them to do well. Whereas when I was talking to these kids, I noticed that their environment was not that necessarily. Um, and, you know, and it, it inspired me to say, all right, well, what can I do to introduce these people into my high school? And I started a club called Hoop Dreams at my high school and we did a basketball tournament and we raised, I remember a thousand dollars in cash and the people from Hoop Dreams came and I gave them a bag of cash. <laughs> she said, here's, here's the cash. Um, and, uh, that was my first, uh, realization of, um, inequality, um, or inequality of opportunity is probably a better way to say it. And, uh, you know, I think without that, um, interaction, I don't know if the two of us are, are really, uh, sitting here having this conversation because it gave me experience into a world that wasn't the world that I was interacting with every day. And it opened up my eyes and opened up my ears to try to see things from a different lens and a different perspective. And from then I went on and I really studied sociology and African-American studies and um, was fascinated specifically around race uh, and, and race inequality or race differences. And in a way that, that actually brought us together. And uh, we'll talk more about what Peace Players does. Um, but I love this idea of trying to be in the middle of things because you're right. I think so, it's so much easier to go the other direction. And I actually think for a lot of people, Irish, Italian, Jewish, Asian, Hispanic, they had to be segregated. When they came here as immigrants, they were forced to live in certain areas. They, they were not allowed to live in other areas. And so there is this long history of being with your people. And there's amazing character that and communities that get built that way. And that's also where I think ignorance starts to be built because you never get to interact with other people and be at the center of what's going on in a larger community outside of that neighborhood or outside that bubble. And what a blessing it was for you to get to interact with all these different people. Um, and, and I know you still have Irish roots and Catholic roots, and there's a pride to that as well. And certainly going to Gonzaga, there's a pride to that school but you also got to be in the middle of, of different things. Um, so it's pretty, pretty profound. Yeah, and I think pretty unique. Um, and having that experience from an early age, I mean, it's funny looking back on it. I don't even know that we like saw a lot of difference or like even aware of it. It was just kind of our everyday everyday life it just seeps into you yeah so it wasn't like because i think when there's maybe different groups of people together people feel like they have to maybe act a certain way to be open um when and and that sometimes even though sometimes it's like best intentions is like not authentic and so that that that's that's a challenge too so we we had this experience of just you know this is what you know, and it's sleeping over kids' houses, and it's you know, you know, going to you know birthday parties, and just um, where you're kind of embedded in their own families and everyday lives, everyday lives too. So it was it was a, it was a unique upbringing. 
Yeah, and that, I think that was the point I was trying to make. It turned into a long-winded mm. <laughs> comment. Um, but yeah, I think in the beginning, I felt like I was being forced mm. into this interaction. And then as I just started realizing that these people are people and we just mm. had a conversation, I was like, man, like they're, they're just, they're exactly people, like me. Yeah. Um, they're 16 year old high school kid. And, uh, you know, I think to your point, the more that you can open up that to other people, you, you start to, you start to really see people as people. Yep. Um, so, but at Gonzaga, you, you do do well at, at basketball. And for those that don't know, and, and Brendan and I have many conversations about this because uh, if you've listened to previous podcasts, you know I, for years, worked with Paul VI, uh, another Catholic high school basketball team. And uh, for those that don't know, the Washington, D.C. Catholic League is, A, the most competitive league in the country, and B, has this rich, rich history of basketball. And a lot of people from outside here will we'll both admit know of DeMatha, um, even though Tamatha and Gonzaga have a long-standing rivalry because it's also an all all boys highly um, great sports and, and also academics as well. But um, thriving at basketball, when did that start to take off? You said freshman year. You know, you have to sit on the bench and struggle. You got mom saying, "Oh, maybe you're not that good." <laughs> uh, when did you start to realize that you could actually play ball? Well, I always believed it, and probably was overconfident based on my abilities. Um, you know, it was, you know, like it kind of went in and went in ebbs and flows. So, like, you know, sophomore year, I was, I had a pretty good year, you know, junior year, okay. And then I think my going to my, from my junior year to senior year summer, um, I grew and uh, we had a really special group. And it's funny, like, of all my, you know, college games or coaching, like, you know, I remember probably my high school games the best and the, the teammates, and it was just a really special year. Uh, and we weren't supposed to be all that good, but we ended up being, um, you know, much better than we were we were supposed to. And so I had a, a very uh, really good senior year and was able to go and play in college. When did that come into the picture? So again, I always knew it. <laughs> uh, I started getting looks and college coaches uh, the my the summer before my senior year. Um, and that's when college coaches were still – summer league basketball was really big. And so we played in two summer leagues. We played probably 40 games a summer. And we had practices and workouts. And just a, it's a different uh, setup now. I mean, there's AU basketball we played, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as big and it wasn't where all the college coaches came. So – and my my high school coach was a great coach and really well-known. And um, I actually thought I was – I had gotten recruited by – a couple of colleges and thought I was going to one of them and they ended up, you know, kind of pulling out at the end. So I didn't really have a place to go to. And, and I'm just very fortunate that all this happened because I ended up uh, at Colgate university playing for Jack Bruin, who actually was an assistant at DeMatha and, um, my high school coach coached him at Catholic university and, uh, ended up not kind of, you know, signing or not agreeing to go until April. And so it kind of, you know, that, that, that recruiting process was, uh, was, was long and uh, it was scary a little bit, but I, I couldn't have ended up at a better place in, uh, um, in a Colgate in the, in the Patriot League. And what was it like at Colgate? Much, much different than anything I had ever experienced. Um, Colgate is in kind of upstate, really central New York, uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's one of the snowiest places uh, because of the lake, uh, the lake affects snow in the, in the country. 
it's a beautiful campus. It's a small college. Um, it's a very sporty college because it's a Division One school, but it's only about 3,000 students. And uh, we Colgate at that time was an up-and-coming basketball program within the Patriot League. Um, and Patriot League is, you know, at that time, it was Fordham, Holy Cross, Army, Navy, Lehigh, Lafayette, Bucknell. And, uh, you know, the coach had been there for a few years and was really starting to turn it around. But it was funny, I got there and it kind of mirrored my high school career where I got there, I was, you know, low man, you know, hardly playing, not really, not playing at all as a freshman. Um, so the team was having success, but I was, uh, I was pretty, I mean, I was loving the school and the experience of it, but uh, I wasn't playing at all. And I was like, do I have a future here? Do, am I good enough to play Division One basketball? And so, you know, those questions popped up and, uh, you know, my sophomore year, I ended up getting hurt and being being hurt, hurt my knee, so I was out for most of the year. And so I didn't play it all my freshman year. Didn't really play it all my sophomore year. So I come in my junior year, like, still very unclear: am I going to be a player or not? And uh, I had worked really, really hard, particularly to get stronger. Um, so I was I, I I I was pretty confident that if I was given the opportunity, well, I also knowing I had to make my own opportunity, but I. If I was given an opportunity, I thought I could, I thought I could play. Um, and a couple games into my junior year, um, <laughs> we were we were at Manhattan uh, playing the Holiday Festival, and the game after us was Saint Saint John's Penn, Penn when Penn was really good. They had two two NBA guys, and so the second half was packed, and we were a close game, and I got thrown, and it was like the first time I was really in when it mattered by third, third, fourth game of the year. And uh, someone threw me the ball, and it was way, way ahead of me going towards the basket we were shooting at. And I was going out of bounds, and I'm sprinting, and I did the most uncoordinated, ridiculous dive for the ball that I had no chance of. And I ended up, like, underneath the bleachers, popcorn and big beers you know, spilled on me, and everyone th- thought I was hurt because it was such an awful dive. And the, the referees come over and it's like, you know, stay down, stay down. And I was like, I just got in this game. I've been waiting two two years plus to play. I'm not staying down. So I kind of limped back up and was jogging back to half court to go on defense. And I get this, like, standing ovation at the Garden. I was like, are you kidding me? Because um, the place, again, the place was getting pretty packed for the, for the next game. And from then on out, I played. Um, and we ended up uh, you know, having a pretty good run and, we were fortunate enough to have a lottery pick on our team for my last two years, and um, going to we went to the NCAA as my junior and, and senior year, um, and it was just I mean you couldn't have written it better in terms of both the success that we had as a team. We went to the tournament for the first time ever in school history twice. You know, got to play Georgetown, got to play Maryland, got to play. Know, Kansas, Connecticut, all these incredible experiences with a bunch of guys that I ended up, you know, just loving and being, you know, being best friends with. And O'Donnell, right? And O'Donnell Foyle, who, you know, made all of us a lot better. So, yeah, so O'Donnell Foyle um, came, his final three choices were Colgate, Syracuse, and Duke, and ended up choosing Colgate. And uh, just a, a, a really brilliant um, guy, a great player, a great athlete. You know, he was a 6'10" kind of monster back there playing in the Patriot League. So he made all of us much better. Um, and, you know, you know, arguably the best player in the Patriot League ever. Um, 
a little a little nugget on O'Donnell, and I think Brendan and I have talked about this. So I went to grad school at a school called John F. Kennedy University. And while I was there, there was an NBA player who played for Golden State, and he was getting his master's in sports psychology. So O'Donnell, while he was making millions in the NBA, <laughs> and he made millions, uh, and played in the NBA for probably 12 years, something. I mean, mm. he played for a while. He, he would spend his summers working on his degree, getting a master's in sports psychology, and uh, so I actually got to spend some time with him and I actually read his thesis that he completed, which was all about transitioning out of sport and brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah. Um, just really thoughtful, impressive human being. Yeah, he was an academic All-American, graduated in three years, which Colgate is not set up to graduate, you know, in less, less than four. Um, but the thing that always stood out to me about O'Donnell was how competitive he was and how hard he played all the time. And you're like, listen, if our best guy by far that probably should be playing somewhere else is going to battle like this every day and practice every game, like you got to, you know, you got to follow, you got to bring that same sort of energy. What's amazing is, and I don't know him as well as you do, he has a laid back yeah. uh, demeanor and is very likable and warm. And um, if you just met him, you wouldn't think that this guy is a very competitive yeah. guy. Um, what did you do to set your mind, especially as you started playing at that level, playing in those games, you know, dealing with the pressure of that? What would you do? Was there any processes or things that you would do to set your mind? So I realized, I don't know if, I don't know at what point I realized, but we had a kid also named Tucker Neal, who's a year ahead of me, uh, that was also an All-American guard in my position. And so I saw, hey, and I came in, I, I was a kind of shooting guard at Gonzaga, and um, I was, you know, I prided myself on my ability to shoot and, 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 and to score. And I realized if I ever wanted to play, I had to change my game. Like, I had to be able to handle the ball, I had to be able to play point guard, I had to be able to guard people. So I came in as a, someone that played a lot of zone in high school defense, uh, someone that, you know, I could, you know, was looked to, looked upon a score, um, and I had to, I had to totally I, I realized that I had to I had to change the way I played. I get in better shape, and I had to be able to, you know, be in the position to guard the other team's you know best player and not look for my shot. And if I have a Donald and Tucker, and I'm shooting a lot, then there's something wrong. And so um, I think you know, and for someone that is a you know as a competitor that's sometimes a hard thing to do to say hey i'm not i can't i'm not i can't do that i'm not good enough in that in that role to be able to play so i gotta you know completely be willing to give it up and you know get better other stuff and you know not look to really shoot that much and um you know play better defense and you know my job is to get the guys that can really score the ball and so that that took a little while both the realization and getting myself, you know, to the point where I could I could do that. But that was kind of the mindset that I had. I, I really, really wanted to play, and I realized that is what I had to do if I wanted to get on on the court. What was your major? Philosophy and religion. And what were you thinking back then that you would do with that? I thought I was either going to law school or I was going to be a coach. But I also was. I I, I also I was unsure. But I figured that I'd figured it out. Um, so I was more focused on just, you know, being in college and the basketball. I was like, you know, and I'll, I'll figure out what the, the next steps are when we get there. 
And so the next steps for you, you graduate from there, uh, and this opportunity presents itself to go over to Ireland. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I, uh, I got an opportunity uh, to play and coach. Um, I uh, threw kind of another coach in our league and um, some relationships that we had with our family. I ended up uh, coaching the men's and women's basketball team at Dublin City University. And then I played on a team out of Dublin. Uh, our Irish basketball at that point had 20 professional teams, and you were allowed two Americans on each team. Uh, you played once or twice a week. Um, the Americans uh, were looked upon to do a lot of the scoring. In the mid to late 80s, actually, basketball in Ireland at the, the professional league was pretty good. You had Mario Ellie played you know, play for the Rockets and the, and the Warriors and a, and a couple other people. So you had a pretty high, it started to, to go down a bit and that's maybe why I could play, <laughs> um, you know, kind of in the early, early to mid nineties. Um, so, and then I went totally back where, I mean, it was more of a, it was as much of a social thing as anything, but I remember my first game there, I get there and I'm, I'm bringing the ball up the court. I'm trying to be unselfish and, you know, think I have a, do a, you know, have a pretty good game. And I, they take me in afterwards and like had a sit down with me and are really like kind of upset and like this is unacceptable. It's like we need you to score thirty a game, or you're gonna go home, or you're not. We can't. We can't have you. Well, by the way, when you said to mom and dad, "I'm mm. gonna go over there and play and coach," what was their response? Go. They they were supportive. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. I mean, my dad helped me figure out how to do it, but yeah, they was. Are you kidding me? We. Yeah, it was. I mean, they they knew that I was not good enough. And I knew that I was not good enough where like a professional basketball career playing overseas was in the in the cards. It wasn't. So this is more about a, just kind of a life experience. So this is a go for a year, have fun. Yeah, I mean, fun. I was 22 years old, living in Dublin. My job was to coach and play basketball. I mean, it's not a bad setup. And it, but it is interesting. I could see some parents be like, no, go get a job. Like, stop. Don't. No, my parents are big on, you know, travel and have life experiences and you know i was also fortunate like i didn't have student loans to pay back right right um so i wasn't at the point where you know or i was you know i mean i got i got paid but the money from the coaching and playing essentially paid for me to live and my apartment and like food i didn't come back with any you know any money but i also so i was i not everyone could do that so i, I recognized kind of that i was in a you know a good position so you do it for a year and what comes next so I did it for a year, and uh, while I was over there, so my brother, Sean, and my brother, Devin, both played basketball at Gonzaga, um, and uh, Sean ended up going to Lehigh, and he was actually a freshman when I was a senior, so I got a good start. So we played against each other twice, and my brother and I were, we were a year and a half in age difference, but we were, he was, we were three, three grades apart. And growing up, we always had uh, a contentious relationship, you know, like a lot of I was going to ask three boys. I'm one of three boys. Yeah, you know. Lots of fights, like, lots yeah, of arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and my brother was just kind of always... Middle child. Middle child, always looking for attention. and just, I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you do. <laughs> I'm the middle child. Yeah, and... Uh, but uh, also, like, the funniest, best kid. Like, everyone loves him. That, Maybe, sounds, that sounds more like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so his and he was also a better basketball player than I was. So that he, also sounds more like me. Yeah, he uh, he actually started as a freshman. Lehigh was all Patriot 
rookie team. So he had he had success. And so when we played against each other, the first time um, we started out guarding each other, and the first time down the floor, I'm guarding. Sh- My mom is not happy. To, so in Lehigh, they weren't very good, and uh, there weren't that many fans there. And they had interviewed me like a few days before the Lehigh paper. And I basically said, Lehigh's not very good. Oh. Uh, you know, I beat my brother and everything. Well, there's no, basically, there's no, like, we're going to win. So what's, what, it's just, you know, basically everything you're not supposed to say. And they, they had the article up on their locker room. Oh, and boy. so they were, you know, they were, they were ready. And my, the first time I guard my brother, he comes down. And he's probably 30 feet away from the basket. He pulls up for three. Love it. And I didn't, I was shocked that he was going to shoot it. I'm like, you know, so I get up, get up to him late, and I'm sitting there I'm watching the ball. And I'm like, please do not he go put in. That in didn't no, no, he missed it. Oh. He missed it. He missed it. And then a couple a couple plays later, there's a loose ball, and I dive for it, and I kind of, I don't know if I did it on purpose or not, but I kind of took out his legs, and my mom, in the middle of the game, yells at me, right to be nice to my brother. That's amazing. And not only that, there's no one in the gym hardly. So everyone, everyone hears it. <laughs> so you see the players and the coaches on both sides just laughing. Um, and then so we ended up uh, winning the game. And then the, 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 the game at Colgate, so my parents have both have big families in Rochester. So everyone, like their my grandmothers came, cousins, aunts, people came for that game. And uh, we had a big family party afterwards. And uh, we, we win again. And... I, I I played probably one of my best games, which is this was the last time I played my brother. And there's this great picture of me and my mom and my dad after the game with Sean and I with our uniforms on, and I'm sitting there with a big smile, and Sean's just, <laughs> just you know, got this sad, sad look on his face, knowing that's that's it, that's it, because you know he, for life, I, I was not I was not playing him again, not team one on one, nothing. It was it was it was over. That's a legacy game. Right yeah, 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 it's funny uh, being one of three boys, being the middle child. Also, uh, basketball is my sport. Growing up, my other two brothers were decent athletes. We still argue about who is a better athlete. None of us were good athletes. We we all thought we were good, like you. But we actually didn't, <laughs> we didn't grow. Um, my older brother actually grew, but he grew in college. It was weird. I definitely didn't grow, and we still have arguments to this day about who the best athlete was. And there were a lot of two on two basketball games in our. Uh, driveway where my dad would play with us and you know 15 20 minutes in my mom she'd be in the house and we'd come storming in because somebody got in a fight and we had to break it up so anyway i get brother siblings uh rivalries sibling rivalries uh especially with three boys there's some dynamic there that just causes a ruckus Um, so God bless those parents that raised three boys. Um, you and I both don't have to deal with that. Um, but so Ireland, you're, yeah. you're playing pro ball, you're coaching. Um, yeah. And my, uh, youngest brother, Devin was a senior at Gonzaga playing the year that I was in Ireland. And every few years, the basketball team for Gonzaga did a trip somewhere. My senior, we went to France. Sean went to Dominican Republic. So I was like, all right, let's hook up something for the team to come over to Ireland. So at that time, I started working. I was living in Dublin, but doing some work uh, around coaching in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And in Northern Ireland, you know, there's been this long-standing conflict between the Protestant and Catholic communities there. And young people in Northern Ireland grew up separated by 
the schools they attend, the neighborhoods they live in, and even the sports they play. And basketball was like one of the few, if only, really neutral sports. Didn't have a whole lot of history. Wasn't necessarily identified as a Protestant or, or a Catholic sport, and you could bring kids together to play it. And so the idea was to, to run some camps and clinics and have the Gonzaga coaches and players help run them. So we did that, and my brother Sean, who actually had transferred to Catholic, was playing at Catholic University at the time, came on the trip. And he loved it. He's like, wow, I'd love to do something like that when I graduate. So I was there for a year and then came home. And a couple years later, when my brother graduated from Catholic, I helped him get to Belfast just through some relationships that we had. So that was kind of, you know, the, the genesis of, of Peace Player. So Sean moved there. Uh, the playing thing for him didn't really work out, but uh, he just spent his time doing coaching programs uh, in Belfast and uh, some, some other areas in Northern Ireland and loved what he was doing and got to be really good friends with a police chief in Northern Ireland who had done work in Durban, South Africa, training police officers. And Sean, his name is Jonathan, uh, got to be really good friends. And Sean wanted to continue to, to travel and try this idea of using sports to bring people together uh, somewhere else. And the guy said, hey, I got a great spot for you in Durban. And so Sean came home um, after a year, uh, pitched the idea uh, to start you know, an organization using basketball to bring people together. I and, remember the exact conversation. And what were you doing at this time? So I was... Uh, I had uh, I had lived in New York for a year. I actually thought I was going to go to law school. Ended up taking the test and decided not to go. Um, and I moved back to D.C. and I worked at Gonzaga, actually coaching basketball as a JV basketball coach, and then worked in the development office on a big fundraising campaign for the school. So at that point, you're thinking, I'll, I'll coach and I'll work in in the office. Maybe I'll become a high school basketball coach. Something along yeah, those lines. I mean, I think I was still figuring it out. Um, I definitely, you know, I, I, I lived in New York and, and worked a law firm as my first year, not like being involved with basketball and I wasn't ready to, to stop. Um, and Gonzaga, I mean, it's just a, you know, it's, you talk about the league and the coaches is one of the best basketball, you know, schools in the area and the country. So it's just a, it was a lot of fun. Um, so I coached there, I think for five years, I was a JV coach and assistant varsity, um, but really, working in the development office at Gonzaga, we've got such an unbelievable like network, and people love the school. Um, you know, I learned how to how to fundraise, which ended up in my future job being really, really important as well as kind of building a network. So, I was doing that. I had just gotten married. But isn't that interesting? So you were doing the development because you had to, so that you could coach essentially, right? You wouldn't have probably gone into development if it wasn't also in alignment with the coaching. Correct. So it's interesting. I had lunch today with a, a young woman, and I was telling her my story, and I started off in sales. And at the time, I didn't love sales. It was just what I did. Um, but today, I mean, you have to learn how to sell, and everything is fundraising, selling, developing, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's interesting how those first jobs can help shape you, even though it's not necessarily what you want to be doing. Absolutely. And I think whether it's learning how to raise money or in sales, I mean, those types of experiences translate to whatever you end up doing. Um, and especially what I, you know, what I end up doing, um, both uh, um, you know, the learning how to, how to fundraise and uh, just the, the people at Gonzaga 
that we, you know, I was able to build relationships with, and um, you know, it was just I, I don't know that there could have been a better, <laughs> better place for me to be before I did this. Which is so interesting too, because if you had studied something and knew that you wanted to go into the nonprofit mm. world, you would have maybe taken a different path. Correct. But it's fascinating that that helped you fundamentally and foundationally as you get into the peace players world, um, both network wise, uh, learning how to deal with humans. I'm sure coaching taught you a leadership, uh, component that is at the core of everything you do at peace players. And then of course you have to learn how to raise money. And, um, it's just making me think a lot about everyone's got a path. There's just value in doing like, just, just do. Um, and if you put yourself into, doing then there's probably going to be a lesson there and it might not be the perfect job but it'll help you on your path correct and i think especially these days um just the way the world is and um you know rapidly changing it's i mean i guess there are people that know exactly what they want to do from day one and um and stay in the same you know field or company or what have you but you know i think the relationships you develop and the skills that you learn and, you know, working hard and being a good person, like good things can happen. And, uh, I mean, for, for us, it's just, um, I mean, sometimes you think like there's a guiding hand out there that's been, you know, if I get it too, uh, you know, too, too spiritual on it. But if, you know, a lot of times like, listen, if all of these things, if this, this little thing hadn't happened, right, it wouldn't have led to the next thing, which the next thing, which, which led to what, you know, what we've been able to, to build and what's in place. So you, I, I kind of think there is you know, something else at least involved or guiding that um, because it really, you know, it worked out. The yeah, the, well, the logic isn't there. It's not like, oh, no. go do this, then go do that. No. And the logic wouldn't make sense. And um, so it, it's an interesting thing. And I cut you off when you had said, I got married. Yep. Uh, so you get married and then what comes next? So, so I got married. Um, and sometimes it's hard for me to exactly remember what, you know, what happened when. But it was after I got married that uh, that Sean had, you know, pretty quickly that Sean had kind of pitched this idea and I started helping him. It was his idea. Like, this was all Sean's brainchild. I mean, I had the experience of, of being in Ireland and doing some of the work and seeing what's possible. I had the experience of being at Gonzaga and knowing a little bit about how to how to build, you know, build a nonprofit and just the nuts and bolts. But it was all my brother. And um, so I just thought in the beginning, all right, I'll help you out. You know, help you write, you know, kind of write fundraising letters and figure out a plan and connect with some folks. But it was all him. And he moved to um, to, to Durban in, in 2000, January 2000, Durban, South Africa, just having a few contacts from the police chief in, in Northern Ireland. And Durban's a pretty... Um, rough place. I'm here. I yeah. want to well, have people play funny. basketball. And, and, and again, I don't like. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't even come close to doing what he did. To take that leap, like not really have a plan, and just show up and say I'm going to figure it out. I can never do that. And he started knocking on doors. You know, black schools, white schools. Durban has a large Indian population, so Indian schools. And I was like, I'm here to coach. And Sean has a particular little thing about it. that's always been the case since he's been little. Like he's always been you know, just so like loved and, you know, so many friends and people love him. And he's nature hilarious. or nurture? What do you think? Uh, I think nature, definitely. Yeah. Because we're, we, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we, yeah, it's the exact same way. Um, 
So now he was, he, you know, and he has a fearlessness about him. Almost like he just likes to challenge himself too, but he's just, and sometimes that works out, sometimes maybe it doesn't. But um, so both his, um, you know, his lack of fear just to be able to move to this place and start approaching people, but also he has a way about him um, that people really like and trust, and he builds, you know, relationships pretty quickly. And so he's able to hire some local coaches and, um, you know, after a while, like the kids, would, he'd, ha- he'd coach kids at their own school and bring them together and they'd mix them up so you have kids of different backgrounds and races playing together. But at this point, he's doing it in South Africa. He's not doing Correct. it in Ireland. Correct. Why didn't he just stay in Ireland and do it? I understand he's his police chief that has contacts. Because Sean gets restless and he wanted to move and, and, and he said, I, I see it working here, but is this... Is it just here, or can this work in other places? Got it. So and he, the excitement of going to South Africa, yeah, 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 yeah. the discomfort of it. And he likes to, yeah, just kind of continue to challenge himself. Um, and so he uh, he would mix kids up that, you know, he'd have school teams, and they'd you know, come and play in a tournament and play on mixed teams. And what you see, I think sport, particular basketball, you mix these kids up and say compete, who they're passing the ball to becomes less important than I want to win. Um, and so you see the, the hesitance and the discomfort, at least on the court, disappear pretty, pretty quickly. And that first summer that he was there, my youngest brother and his friend actually came down and spent the summer with him. Um, but Sean had convinced a, a principal at an all-white school uh, to do a match in Umlazi. So Umlazi is a you know, township right outside of Durban. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, and you know the history of townships, it's a you know, pretty, pretty challenging place and you know, kids don't have much and, um, and also there's not, not a lot of exposure and vice versa, you don't have most kids that weren't from townships or especially white kids had never seen a township. So it was the first time in the, ever that a, a school had gone to, like an organized event, had gone to uh, Mlazi. And so South African Broadcasting Channel filmed it. And you mm-hmm. see these kids on this bus, white kids going from their little closed-off neighborhood to Mlazi, like all scared. And they get to the the village where the match is going to take place, and they go down the, the stairs of the bus, and the whole place like just starts cheering. Wow. And the captains exchange flags at half court. And mix up the mix of the teams, and they interview the kids and the coaches and the parents afterwards, and they're all saying the same thing: like, "I was scared, now I can't wait to do this again." And I don't know if there was an aha moment for us ever, but if there was, that that was that was it. And so we thought, all right, I think we can make a go of this. Let's scale it up. Let's go back to to Northern Ireland as our own organization, um, and see see what can happen. And so I. Shortly after that, I quit my job at Gonzaga. I just remember Sean talking to my wife, and she was pregnant at the time. Talking to my wife and be like, um, I'm going to not work anymore for Gonzaga. I'm going to go full-time with Peace Players. I'm not going to have a salary. We're going to live on your salary as a teacher, public school teacher, but it's all going to be okay. And I'm fortunate that, you know, who my wife is, and she believed in it and believed in me. And um, 
know, we made the jump. So there's a fearlessness to you to do that as well. It might not be the same fearlessness as your brother, but there, there's, or, or was it not fearlessness? Because your body language is sort of telling me something different. I don't know if it was fearlessness. Um, probably more confidence in the idea and in our ability to make it work. So, and, and like I said, goes back to the same thing, probably overconfidence because it was really, really hard. Dude, where does that come from for you? Because you've now said that in basketball, maybe I had more confidence than I should have. There, there sounds like there was a self-belief in you from a, a relatively young age. I mean, I would say in, not in everything, um, but in certain things. I, mean, I think it existed from, um, you know, with myself and, and my, my two brothers. Um, to all three of you, you think yeah. have that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, come in different from mom, ways. Come from yeah, dad? Yeah, I mean, it comes from parents, came from how we lived. Probably came from a little bit about how we challenged each other. The competitiveness in yeah, the house. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I think there was also belief in each other. Um, but it was an unbelievable idea. <laughs> like, when Sean first talked about starting an organization using sports to bring people together, like, of course. And then you started looking around and you're like, why isn't this being done more? And so I think part of it also, like, I, we can make this work. And I probably underestimated how hard it was going to be both to raise money and like build a, a strong organization with a good culture. And because we didn't, I mean, he didn't know anything. I sure didn't, I didn't know much either. Yeah, you just thought, roll the balls out, let's, get people together. Let's figure it yeah, and, 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 you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, and so, in the early days, we pr- we definitely grew too quickly. Um, we didn't pay enough attention to like the people and the structure and all the things that you know we needed to. I probably got too focused on just because we grew quickly. My job was always like, all right, I gotta raise the money to stay alive, and th- you guys will figure it out in South Africa, Northern Ireland, right? My job, I j- and so I just you know did a lot of things the the wrong way. Um, and I think if we hadn't been self-aware enough to recognize that's not the way to do it, we're, we're being foolish. We have to change course. Um, you know, it definitely would have failed. So what what caused you to to recognize that? I don't know. I don't know if it was, uh, if it was one thing, but I think, you know, the thing you learn pretty quickly is hey, Sean's great to get this thing started, right? But in order for these programs to be meaningful, you're talking about deep-seated conflicts and really complicated situations. They could not be built outside in. They had to be built inside out. But in order for that to happen, you can't just say, all right, someone to do it. Number one, you got to find the right people, group of people. But two, they had to believe that they own this, that this is their thing too, not that they were being told what to do. So I think that piece, because things weren't, you know, working in terms of there was, you know, whether it's staff being upset or us not raising enough money or, you know, not having, um, uh, you know, a clear plan of where we were going, it, I mean, it became obvious that we need to change course. And it, particularly around the American leadership, like early on, the first couple of years, it was all led by people that, you know, you know, our friends or whatever that we sent for a year or two to say, all right, you're going to you know, kind of manage these programs. And they weren't working in it. Again, I don't know if there was one moment, but you come to a realization, listen, 
we got to do this a different way. And that also led to us, if we really want to make these programs, you know, grow and, you know, be long lasting and impactful, they had to be there, you know, you had to, they had to be locally led and managed. They actually had to be their own entity, you know, their own 501c3. And we were also, one of the things we did really well, and we, part of us was just being lucky, is that we had this network of people, both from our family and friends and Gonzaga and whatever, that we got a lot of smart people that could help guide us. And that's one of Sean's gifts, too, is that he's not afraid to, to ask people, you know, for, for help and advice and um, not afraid to go talk to people. So we were able to pretty early on um, bring some really, really smart people, um, you know, into the organization or, you know, as mentors and as volunteers and board members that helped, helped us figure this out. But I've seen you in action, too, as a leader, and you ask questions, and you are big into empowering people mm-hmm. to do work. The ability to ask good questions when you're asking for advice, is that something that you guys all have? Is that something that, that, that you share? And I'm just curious where you learn how to do that. Yeah, I think it came from a few different places. I think... There's a particular individual that really helped teach me these things, and that's, you know, that's Ron Shapiro, who, you know, we were fortunate enough to get on our board pretty early and became our, our board chair and, um, you know, has as big of a hand in, in making Peace Players what it is as, as anybody. And so I think, you know, having that, you know, learning from him in terms of being prepared, in terms of not wasting time, um, in terms of, um, you know, really understanding what motivates others and why they would want to be involved in things and not just what you want. Um, so having, I mean, there, I mean he's, he's, he's a prime example, but there were, there were others like that, um, that we were able to, to learn from. And I think when you're seeing things not go all that well early on, you're probably more willing to, you know, to be open to listen rather than if everything's going fine. Like, why? I don't need to. I don't need advice. A guy. We, we're, we're 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 doing well. Um, so I think the the mix of and I'll, maybe this is where and I don't know if confidence is the right word, but by by admitting that we were doing things maybe the wrong way or um, needed a change. In my mind, it wasn't I'm being weak or I'm not smart enough. It's like this is being smart. Like, you know, if this isn't working, let's figure out a way to, to make it work rather than saying, well, I have these assumptions on how the things are supposed to go. Therefore, I need to stick with them and screw anything else because I'm right and you're wrong. Like, that's stupid. So I think uh, the wanting it to work so badly and seeing things not work makes you pretty quickly say, all right, how do we fix it? Rather than how do I close myself off? What, what makes a good leader? I mean, I think... For for me, I think maybe you can probably answer that question in a few ways. I think when it's not about yourself and it's about others. Servant leadership? Correct. And I would mix like servant with heroic. Like, and I'm not saying that, not applying that, you know, anybody that, you know, that we're heroes, we're not. And I'm actually, we're not. Like the people that are heroes that I work with are the people that actually live there every day and, you know, have to grow up in these in these challenges and divides, and are taking real personal risk every day to do what they do. Those those are heroes. But you know, um, I think the people that make and whether you're talking about running a business or being a coach or running a nonprofit, if people make it about them, 
and you really see this with founders, um, particularly, I mean, in my word, particularly founders of nonprofits, where a cause becomes so associated with a, an individual or a particular set of individuals that it, it all relies on them and it stunts you. Because if it's all on one person to make it happen, you're going to be limited about what you can do. And if that person leaves or gets sidetracked, you're, you know, the thing falls apart. So for us, it was really like, and Sean and I both got probably, you know, you, you get a little bit, they love, people love the brother's narrative and there was some publicity and both of us really quickly got uncomfortable with it. Cause listen, I'm, a, I'm living in my house with my family. Like I have a pretty good life and, you know, and we're working in all these, all these places with people doing this stuff every day. And I'm the one that's getting the attention. It's not, it's not right. And it's actually going to hurt the organization if people feel like, Hey, you've these two, two people over here, that are getting, you know, getting, getting the attention for doing what they're doing every, you know, every day. But I'd imagine there was also people in your ear saying, yeah, but you're giving publicity to this cause Correct. that is helping raise awareness Correct. and giving a megaphone to it. So how did you balance that in those those early days where you're doing this incredible work, I'm just going to throw in, yeah. I know there's more to the story, but you're, you're in Israel, you're in Cyprus, you're in South Africa, you're in Ireland. So you're all over the world. And I'd imagine, yeah, we need this press. It's going to let people know what we're doing and help us keep going. Well, I think there's a few ways to do it. Um, and sometimes we did this well and sometimes we didn't. I mean, the press thing always made me more nervous than excited because if your story is, you know, told the wrong way, especially in the environments that we operate, it can really, really hurt you. Yeah. So we're really... And hurt the people that And hurt the people and involved. put it at risk. And um, so we're pretty careful, or we try to be very careful. And, you know, after the first couple of years, we were intentional about if there is a story, they're not necessarily interviewing me or Sean. Like, we're not the focal point. It's, all right, go talk. You want... You want an interview? Go talk to this person. Go visit the site. That's the, and and really be and be upfront about it. this. This this is not a story about. It. And the more it's not even that interesting. Like the more interesting stories, um, you know, the people on the ground. So for example, we had uh, uh, two of our people that work with us in the northern in Northern Ireland received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYS in two thousand and seven. Uh, Trevor Ringland and David Cullen for you know a bunch of stuff that they were they were doing there. And my brother helped, like, um, he was on site in Belfast and working with ESPN to do the story. And both of us were at the ESPYs. But the best part was Dave and Trevor coming out and, you know, thanking and telling a little bit about their story. I'm like, all right, that's what impact looks like. That's real, right? If it was somebody that wasn't them, it's it's not and you know and also the, the you know the video that went along with it telling you know their story and Trevor being the, the son of a policeman and Dave you know you know son of someone who's an IRA it's, it's just you realize that that is the better story and that actually helps the organization more because people say this stuff's real how many times have you seen stories about oh so and so Johnny from you know whatever you know raised money from all his family and friends and go and look what he's doing in Africa that's that's not I don't believe in that story, right? Now, there's a role for that person, but for the people that are going to have the most impact, right, it's got to be people that, you know, are from there, or at least, you know, they're on a, a very even partnership. It can't be someone coming from the outside swooping in and say, here, I've got the answer. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be responsible for, for, you know, you changing your life or this community becoming safer. 
you know, I, I've got this thought in my head now, which is in my world, and uh, I've been approached by media to talk about my work, and I always am very nervous and very scared because I think any coach knows that it's not them it's that's a, doing the work. It, like, I, I, I can have a ton of success with this person and then coach that person, and this person won and that person lost. All right, well, I did the same thing. The reality is I don't hit a golf ball. I don't shoot a basketball. Mm. When I work with executives, I don't, you know, make decisions for them on where the business is going and where they want to go. And so I think a coach helps someone get from where they are to where they want to go, but they're just unlocking. They're not, they're not actually doing the, the walking. And it's interesting as we prepare for the Super Bowl, Bill Belichick, if you listen to him and Sean McVay, I mean, they're very different dudes uh, in, mm-hmm. in every way. But the one... There's a couple of con- uh, constants, but one of them is you'll always hear them talk about their players. Yeah, our players are incredible. Our players did this. Our players did that. Because the narrative that you're going to hear is these two geniuses. Uh, one is 32 and one is I don't know in his 60s. I don't know how Bill, Bill, Bill Belichick is. And I think when coaches do fall for that and say, yeah, no, it is me, uh, that's when they start losing. And I think, to your point, when leaders start to think, no, it's me that, that has – has done all this and they lose sight of the people that are on the ground and actually doing those day-to-day things, um, their leadership uh, changes. Having said all that, yeah, you and Sean did have to have the courage to start this and to go with it and to hustle and to make things happen. And by the way, coaching matters too. Bill Belichick and Sean McVay, they Im- make an impact, but the it, it, I think it, it's... It's a hard thing to try to figure out where that line is of where you want to promote for the sake of the work and understand how it can work best. And I'd say that it also parallels with how you structure it, right? So uh, each, so we're now Cyprus, Northern Ireland, South Africa, uh, and Israel. And we also have uh, a growing program in the U.S. We're in five U.S. cities. Uh, so not only are we or uh, do I recognize the importance of, um, you know, people being recognized for being the leaders, but also structuring an organization where the actual leadership comes from there? So our role um, as kind of, you know, maybe it's a headquarters, I don't know what you would, you know, a, a hub has changed over the years where, um, you know, we used to be in charge. So we would work with, you know, the people in Northern Ireland, but, you know, we were the one essentially directing it. So that structure has changed where each of the, you know, each of the programs are their own entity and the leadership on the ground, so the people that are staff members, their boss is the local board chair, right? And our job is to support and network that in. So we could talk all we want about, hey, this is shared leadership and there needs to be, you know, local ownership and, you know, we're here to support, but if you don't structure an organization to actually be able to do that, and if people aren't empowered, you know, in lots of different ways, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. And for us, then the challenge is, okay, how do you maintain the balance between us all having this tight mission uh, and us being on the same page versus this, well, this is, this is theirs. So it's not my job to tell them they've got to do it, you know, A and B, C way. And what we've come up with is there's got to be lots of togetherness in terms of a shared vision. 
right? And so we're all working towards the same goals, all very transparent. My job every day is not to tell other people what I need. It's to ask them what, what they need and how I can best support. And the more that all the people that work for us around the globe feel like they're supported and they're part of something bigger than themselves, we've got the best chance of, of staying aligned. Um, so it would be real easy, and, and you know, for for us to say, "Hey, yeah, go out. This is about you." But at the end of the day, these are, you know, we're the ones that are making all the decisions. When that's definitely not the case now. So the challenge is keeping that that balance. You know, maintaining the strong mission while at the same time continuing to be able to to grow and structure yourself in a way where you know, when you go to these places, as, as you've seen, Brian, this isn't about somebody in the states. This is about them. This is about them working together to solve problems that they face rather than looking for somebody else to come in and tell them how to do it. But I would say that in the, the, the global component is really, partner, is really important because people do love to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. So our kids that you know, are in the you know, Falls and Shanko Road in, in, in Belfast, it's real easy just to see their own you know, f- four or five blocks, right? But through working with us, they're also, you know, a part of things happening thousands of miles away and learning from kids that are overcoming their own challenges in, you know, Israel and the West Bank or in Brooklyn or in, in Baltimore. And so to maintain that, hey, this is about you and what's happening here and you're the, you know, you're figuring out the solution, but also be bound together and networked with all these other young people doing the same. That's, that's like where the magic happens. And there's something beautiful now where they can stay connected. Correct. And in a way that they couldn't 20 years ago, uh, they can connect and you can have this sort of connection of, of leaders that are young people and the adults who are, are working can also stay connected and, yeah. and feel like they're part of that. And what's been really neat over the last few years especially um, is our ability to have more and more exchanges and convenings when kids from our different sites are actually physically together, uh, learning from one another, um, getting inspired together. We're actually starting a new project this summer called the Friendship Games. We'll have big, uh, big gatherings every summer, uh, at least for the next three years, uh, where hundreds of participants and coaches uh, and, and volunteers from our, both our programs that exist we run, as well as partnership organizations, organizations that, that we work with. So you're going to have all these people with the same, you know, doing the same kind of work, um, you know, together over, you know, uh, you know, over a week. Uh, it's going to be a pretty incredible experience. And I'm going to paint the picture as we, we start to wind down. So the last two summers, I've gone to Israel with Brendan and the organization and some of the amazing aspects of what the work that they do is it's not just the kids, it's also the parents. Mm. And so you have parents, let's just use Israel as an example, who, you know, um, would never talk to each other, never interact with each other, even though they might be walking next to each other on the street. And just by these kids playing basketball together, now they're sort of, for lack of a better word, forced to interact with each other. And all of a the sudden, they start seeing each other as people. And I've seen it in Baltimore. They're doing work up there. And so they go into the community and they figure out, what does this community need? How can, how can we service them? Uh, what are some of the challenges that exist? And, oh, by the way, we're going to use this basketball and this, these hoops 
to have these people come together and see each other as people. And it's just such a simple, it's really not that complicated. Uh, I understand the mechanics of it are complex, but the idea of sport breaking barriers the Olympics as, as as supposed to serve that in a lot of ways. And if you listen to people that go to the Olympics, they talk about living in the Olympic village and mm-hmm. interacting with people from all over the world. And once you start to take out politics and you start to just throw in uh, a game, people start to realize that there's, they're more, they have more in common than they do, uh, than, than they have, uh, that makes them different. So, yeah. Um, and, and I think what we've learned from, you, know, you mentioned the Olympics. Um, you know, I think things like that in professional sports serve as a great symbol of what sport can do. Um, but activities like ours, um, in terms of you know them being constant, so our kids are together on a daily basis, you know, over a multiple years. Like, so the idea isn't it just that you know sport. If kids play together once, they're going to change how they view each other. It's really important for us, and this is kind of what's common in all of our all of our sites, that kids are together on a consistent basis um, over a multiple of ye- multiple of years, knowing that these uh, these divides and conflicts are, are complex and deep rooted, and they're not going to be, you know, the kids are not going to transform the way they think like overnight. They need to be. I talked about this before, like locally led. There needs to be a leadership pipeline where kids can go from participant to coach to, to you know to leader. Um, and there needs to be, this is the, the, really the part that took us a while to figure out, but that mix between the basketball as the foundation as well as, all right, what are you doing on top of that in terms of a curriculum, in terms of how you train your coaches, in terms of how do you really make these feelings stick when kids are back home with their communities, and how do you involve their families, their siblings, their communities? How many kids are touched by Peace Players? So right now we'll, we have about 6,500 kids that are in our program every day in multiple you know, multiple regions, that will increase fairly significantly um, in the coming years just because of, uh, of both uh, the expansion in, in the U.S., both in terms of, you know, we're in five U.S. cities and those programs are, are small now, but they're going to grow, as well as, um, you know, new projects. We've done a lot of work over the last few years um, doing kind of training and consultancy. So we have a project right now in Rwanda. Uh, working with uh, the sports ministry uh, there and, and training coaches and using basketball, you know, to brood, bring the two, uh, you know, two sex together. Um, and so I, w- I would think, you know, two or three years from now, we'll probably at least double that. And how many employees? Right now we've got 103. And so how do you manage that on your shoulders? You know, you've got 6,500 kids yeah. that are in conflicted areas that are interacting but uh, these are this isn't hollywood this is real stuff with with real challenges uh and then having 103 employees that are also not all of them are in those spaces but they like you said it takes hero leadership Mm. a lot of those people are taking on heroic roles how do you manage yourself yeah i was gonna say I, i manage myself i don't manage manage them i mean my job uh, is, is largely around, uh, you know, a few different pieces. One is around the kind of generating the resources, um, to, you know, sustain and grow what we can do. It's around kind of working on the vision and working with the different leadership and boards on, on that kind of shared, shared vision. Um, and then it's about how do I, how do I support our leadership team in doing their own, 
on jobs. The management part is largely, you know, led by others. Um, and that would include like, um, you know, a leadership team in Northern Ireland that, you know, is a managing director and a board. And I mean, they're, they, they have the, uh, you know, kind of the autonomy and authority. Uh, I would imagine there have been nights or days where either nervousness or anxiety or being scared, any, any tools or techniques or things that you do to make sure that you are able to service, you know, we always talk about the oxygen mask as a leadership analogy. When the airplane's going down, yeah. put your mask on first, and then you could put other people's masks on. So I'm curious what you do to put your mask on. Yeah, well, I think, and this is also going back to to lessons learned from from Ron Shapiro. I think just the importance of preparation, and whether that means um, before you go into a meeting, you know, knowing what the objectives are, and you've, you know, you've you practice it. You practice your pitch. Um, if you are doing succession planning, or if you are, you know, looking at worst case scenarios in terms of, you know, things that could happen on site and with your kids or with staff, um, that you're as prepared as you can be in every instance. And I think that also like feeds into the. You look at the Jesuits. You look at experience at Gonzaga. You look at even just what you learn from your coaches. In terms of if you do it enough in practice, once you go out in the game, you know, it's going to be like second nature and not going to have to think about it. But I've also seen you be very prepared for certain things and then adjust and yeah. adapt on the fly. So how do you figure out how to do that yeah. and be flexible? Yeah, so from, uh, I mean, a lot of is, you know, you prepare, but then you also prepare to, to probe and to ask questions. Um, and again, make it about if you're going into a meeting whether it's a pitch meeting or a partnership meeting, and if you're thinking about what you need, then you're less likely to be successful. So, you know, doing as much pre- preparation and, and you know before the meeting, both in terms of um, you know what you know about the other and you know your own uh, you know what what you want to say, but you know in 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 person meetings and on the phone, you know really continuing and trying to figure out what does somebody else want. And then once you have, you know, you've prepared and then, you know, you've probed, you're ready to propose. Um, so I think, and, and one of the, the dangers is, you know, doing this for a long time, never getting, let me go back to overconfidence, never getting overconfident, right? And not being, not being lazy in terms of, you know, how you, how you prepare for each engagement. And if you start, start slipping, you know, you're going to see it in, in the results. So I would say that that is, I mean, in, in so many different circumstances, really spending the time and focused on, you know, doing the work to be prepared, whether that means you as an individual, you know, before a meeting or a talk, or it means as an organization, as you look to, you know, your, your budgeting or, you know, your, you know, looking, just looking at, uh, you know, your staffing or, um, you know, being ready for for bad things to happen. So the less that you have to make up in the moment, I think the better. Um, but also mixed in with that willing, you know, being being able to adapt. And again, I think the more that you're outwardly focused on you know, the wants and needs of others, the better position you're going to be able to do to all, do all those things. You know, the prepare, propose. I'm sorry, prepare, pro, propose. So I think that's a beautiful place for us. To, to shut it down. Before we do, I want to try to serve you. So uh, what 
what what's coming up for peace players sure. what do you need help with uh, how can my community help you and uh, just feel free to share what's going on yeah so uh, we have just uh, we're just making plans for this summer for Baltimore Brooklyn Detroit Chicago and LA our programs there so if people are interested in getting involved or, or seeing them you can look at our website peaceplayers.org uh, we've also have a uh, a program uh, on our website uh, that uh, uh, supports volunteers and one of the challenges is you know we work in uh, you know some remote places so how do, how do the kids and families that you know you know in their everyday lives how can they support and our, our website is a great resource for that maybe it's you know it's throwing a, 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 a basketball your own kind of peace players tournament in your neighbor in your own you know neighborhood or school or it's doing a service project or, um, but our, our website has lots of good, uh, uh, you know, information and toolkits to be able to make that happen. Awesome. Well, I want to just wrap up by saying I've seen you in action leading, uh, men and women in a bunch of different capacities and your ability to empower people and make them feel special is a unique gift that you give to your community, uh, the, the work that you do. And, and you mentioned culture early in this conversation. And I think you've created just incredible culture uh, in peace players. And then the other amazing thing is uh, I, I can't explain to people I've tried uh, the impact that your organization has on, on people. And it's multi-directional. It's not one dimensional. And I, I just encourage people to do some research on what you're up to and the world there, there are challenges in the world that will continue to present themselves and where there are challenges there are also opportunities. And specifically in Israel where I've spent time with you the last two summers to watch the opportunities that arise out of conflict. And um, it just gives me tremendous hope and uh, excites me to, the nth degree to see what can come out of adversity and, and, and challenges. And certainly I, I don't wish conflict on any community. And when there is conflict, there is opportunity for hero leaders. And that is going on within your organization in a miraculous way. And then hero participants uh, and hero parents um, and just incredible humans. And to see what you're doing all over the U.S. now, our country needs it as much as as any other country in the world. So um, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And uh, if anyone is curious about Peace Players, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. <laughs> so you can easily uh, reach out to me there. And uh, once again, I just want to thank you for helping to unlock this for me and uh, reinvigorating some of the passions I had when I was in high school and college. And I'm excited to see where it goes, especially in the United States. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And whether you're talking about running a business or being a coach or running a nonprofit, if people make it about them, and you really see this with founders, um, particularly, I mean, in my work, particularly founders of nonprofits, where a cause becomes so associated with an individual or a particular set of individuals that it, it all relies on them and it stunts you because if it's all on one person to make it happen, you're going to be limited about what you can do. And if that person leaves or gets sidetracked, you're, you know, the thing falls apart. So for us, it was really like, and Sean and I both got probably, you know, you, you get a little bit 
they love people love the brothers narrative and there was some publicity and both of us really quickly got uncomfortable with it listen I'm in, I'm living in my house with my family like I have a pretty good life and you know and we're working in all these all these places with people doing this stuff every day and I'm the one that's getting the attention it's not it's not right and it's actually gonna hurt the organization if people feel like hey these two people over here they're getting you know getting getting the attention for doing what they're doing every, you know every day